Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 9. The Dark Mark. Don't tell your mother you've been gambling, Mr. Weasley implored Fred and George as they all made their way slowly down the purple carpeted stairs. Don't worry, Dad, said Fred gleefully. We've got big plans for this money. We don't want it confiscated. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Casper, two big announcements. Uh-huh. We want to remind people about PodCon. Yes. Um, and the other big date on the calendar is that it was your birthday yesterday. It was. You are 31 years young. Uh, 26 again, oh. I think it's. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you had happy birthday. Thank you. I think it's just such a great excuse for me to tell you how much I love you. Oh, I appreciate that. But do you have a story for us today, Madeir? I do. Well, thinking of age, I actually wanted to take us back to high school. <laughs> You know, throughout my time in school, I never really was a popular kid. I was always a little bit at the margins. I wasn't very good at sports. I wasn't academically brilliant. There wasn't really anything that stood me apart. And I look back on it now and I think of the amazing skill that some bullies had in making me feel small. Just even thinking about it now, like my hands are sweating. And there were two students in particular. It wasn't that they were the most popular. It wasn't that they had the most skill, but they were kind of like the henchmen of the cool kids. And there was some physicality to the bullying. I remember at one party, one of them was a little drunk and was smoking and kind of playfully, but also seriously was trying to extinguish his cigarette on my arm. That was maybe the time when I was most afraid. And the weird thing is, I can't remember everything else they did. All I remember is that I viscerally disliked them and that even now, sometimes I will go on LinkedIn and just look at their profiles and it all comes rushing back to me. I become angry and scared and it's just a very horrible experience that travels through time in the same way that I think in these pages, we see that the image of the dark mark up in the sky above the forest 13 years later sends the whole crowd into panic. And not only the innocent bystanders, the kind of death eaters who are playing with Mr. Roberts and the other muggles suddenly think Voldemort has returned and flee. And I just want to figure out what is that about? How do we maintain these grudges and intense feelings over so many years when we can't actually remember what it was that happened in the first place? Yeah, I think that that is one of the interesting things about grudges is they have a bad rap. But to some extent, grudges are a form of self-protection. You're like, well, if I hate you, I'm going to stay far away from you and then you can't hurt me again. Right. And so you can remember the anger rather than the harm. I love that. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into the theme of grudges on this really hard chapter. Things get really real in this chapter. Shall you count me in for my 30-second recap? Three, two, one, go. The Quidditch match ended. Everybody is, like, so excited that they stay up for a last cup of hot cocoa. They finally go to bed, and then they hear some scuffling. The Weasleys sort of um, get separated into two groups, and there's just mayhem, and um, these muggles are being tortured. They're being, like, lifted in the air and, like, played with. And then the dark mark comes, and everyone scatters, including Harry, and then Harry loses his wand, and Winky, it turns out, has his wand. So everybody's accusing Winky of casting the dark mark, and Winky did not do that. And um, everybody goes back to the tents, unsure of who has the dark mark. Ugh, I, the last third of the chapter got done in three seconds. <laughs> well, so. let me fill in there. Great. Okay. So then the dark mark is in the sky and on your mark, get set, go. And um, suddenly uh, people start operating in and Harry and Ron and Hermione are like, oh, it's, it's not us. So they duck and everyone shoots stupefy above them and it kind of ricochets around the woods. And then Amos Diggory is like really pretty brave. And it's like, I'm going to go find who it is and finds Winky. And then Mr. Crouch is like, how dare you? I'm going to fire you. You know what this means? Clothes. And um, Buddy Crouch is kind of being a little unusual. So we should pay attention to that, I think. Um, and yeah, that's really it. Dark Mark is back for the first time in 13 years and suddenly all the Death Eaters go away. Percy Weasley completely agrees with Barty, by the way, that he should fire Winky. I mean, before we dive in, Vanessa, how did you feel? I felt devastated reading this chapter. Like, what was your experience? Reading this chapter for the first time in a while in the current context of the type of, like, domestic terrorist mayhem that we live in in the United States right now felt so prescient and so emblematic of that complete chaos that I always imagined being one of the situations to be. These types of attacks were happening at the time that the book came out, but not the way that they are today. And it just gave me a newfound respect for the novel and how prophetic it is. Yeah, it was deeply disturbing in a way that for me, it had never been this disturbing before. What about you? You know, I couldn't stop thinking about Ginny. She's hardly mentioned in the pages, but she's there. And the way in which the the torture of the muggles happens in her sight, and she knows what it's like to be controlled by a magical force that wants to do violence to her. I felt like I was reading it through Ginny's eyes and the the trauma that was returning, not only of her own experience, but suddenly thinking about the ways in which the whole society is traumatized as soon as this image reaches the sky total fear and chaos and the hooded figures are so clearly analogous to the kkk burning crosses terrorizing a people for their own pleasure that was what was felt so sickening about this whole chapter was that there is no purpose to this except for their own pleasure i mean let's let's dig into it through the theme of grudge because i think that the purpose question is interesting mm. what what is at stake for the people who are perpetrating these crimes and what responsibility do we have to understand them or to see ourselves as complicit well that's a great question because in my first reading when i first read the books i really thought that you know the death eaters were connected to the dark mark that arises and of course we learn that that's not the case these death eaters are kind of play acting uh, they're having a bit of fun they've had too much to drink and what does mr roberts care he's going to be obliviated anyway this is all harmless in the end it's just a uh, hijinks that got carried away it's just fun torture not serious torture right 
And then when the Dark Mark is actually launched by a loyal Death Eater who wants to signal Voldemort's power, you know, is there a difference there? Yes, in intention, but no, in impact on the population. Well, I do think that there's a difference in impact. I think that one could have been an isolated incident and the other is like a genuine desire to have the dark force rise again. I think there's a difference, but I think that they are linked to one another. They're cousins because you can't have one without the other. That's what I think is so important. Yeah, is that even these like, quote unquote, harmless acts of bullying of one off events. I think that these things on a metaphysical level, if we believe ourselves to be interconnected in any way, whenever we are rude to anybody, we are rude to ourselves and we are rude to all of humanity. And whenever we dehumanize anybody, we are dehumanizing all of us and we are dehumanizing all of humanity. And then just on like a psychological level, if children are watching you treat muggles like this and not get into any trouble, children are learning a certain lesson about the way that they're allowed to treat muggles or the risk that they live in as being muggle-born, or if it turns out one day they're on the wrong side of whatever's in vogue, what is at risk for them? So it turns the world into this more dangerous place in which systems of oppression, like being a loyal Death Eater who is constantly trying to make sure that Voldemort can rise again, is allowed culturally to exist, right? It's like a Petri dish that allows this bacteria to thrive. 100%. Oh, I have so much to say about this because we've talked about Arthur and his treatment of Mr. Roberts, right, when they arrived with the money. Here is the natural conclusion of it. And by the way, we see Amos Diggory doing it to Winky. Yep. Right? We get to know Winky in these pages in the previous chapter. We know her name. We know a little bit about her, which family she works for, belongs to. And the way that he calls her Elf elf, elf, repeatedly, doesn't inquire after her name, immediately assumes guilt. There are so many ways in which she is dehumanized. And of course, that's how the whole system of how self oppression is able to exist is that they're seen as lesser than. I think it's important to notice the ways in which Hermione's action on behalf of Winky comes right after the moment when her life is in danger. The way in which Muggleborns are being othered and put at risk is right when the moment she starts to stand up against adults and saying what you're doing is wrong around house elves. I feel like those two things are so connected. That's so interesting because she says in the box, right, like in the previous chapter, she does say it's terrible that this poor elf is afraid of heights and has been set up here. But she's not speaking truth to power in any real way. She's saying it to her friends. And I love that idea. I had never thought of that, that she gets radicalized in this moment of like, First, they didn't speak up for the house elves, and then nobody was left to speak up for me. And she's like, okay, I guess what's going to happen is I have to stand up. Me, like adult pleaser wanting the right answer, Hermione, is going to stand up in this moment. And it's sad that it takes that to make her stand up, but also good for her in that moment for doing it. But I'm wondering what it is that causes someone like Amos to say elf, 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 right? What grudge does Amos have against Winky? Well, I think this is the same question as what happens on the school playground. Why do young men pick on the gay kid, right? Like, because it in some way threatens their own identity. And so whether it's about the untapped power of elf magic that wizards are afraid might overpower them. Or the secrets that they know the elves know about them from years of being, like, invisible but watching. Right, like there's something that's threatened for them, so they have to externalize an other and reduce the value of the elf. 
And so I think we're seeing the really dehumanizing and negative impact of a grudge here, right? Because Amos does seem to have this grudge against this creature that is just beneath him. And that grudge turns into a type of contempt and a resentment and a, and a total dehumanizing, right? An unwillingness to look at the facts around him and maybe even figure out what's actually going on in order to just toss off Winky. I do wonder, though, if we're thinking about grudge in the right way, because what we're pointing to is so structural and so systemic. And a grudge still feels like there's something personal Personal. to it. I don't know. I feel like a grudge, there's something in that which feels personal. Can't personal and systemic come together? So I feel like the Jewish community that I grew up in, right, like as a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And so this was my reality. And none of them bought German products my entire childhood. There was this like cultural grudge. I mean, it was openly judged if somebody bought a Mercedes. I can tell you most German brands for things. I don't care about brands of anything. I don't know if something's American or not, but I know when something's a German brand because I was forbidden from buying those brands, right? My grandmother gave my mother money if she failed German tests. <laughs> What? Yeah, because she'd been so active in the resistance and so exactly the same, right? Right. And so I do think that these systemic forces can end on these like very personal grudges. And I do remember the first time that I went to Germany, I was just changing trains in Berlin. And the like announcement over the loudspeaker went, Achtung, Achtung. And I was like, I had such a grudge against that accent, right? And like, you have to deprogram yourself from those grudges. But it does feel like both systemic and personal in that moment. Well, and I think that's because ultimately, like, the systemic can only be enacted in the personal. Sure, if you're looking at a big scale, it's in the statistics and it's in the patterns. but And in the policy implementations and where money gets funneled. A hundred percent. But the way that has impact is on individuals right. at scale. Right. And now, irony of ironies, you know, my partner is from Germany, so I go to Germany all the time. And now the accent has such, like, a wonderful connotation to me, but... Thank God I spent years trying to deprogram myself from that because I I think I would literally have a different partner if I hadn't done that. I think the systemic can become personal on such a specific level, in such a personal level. Vanessa, this seems very small in comparison, but there's a couple of really interesting linguistic pieces in the text this time. First of all, that a synonym for the word grudge is to have umbrage with something. And so even just thinking on that theme of grudge is making me think differently about when we meet Dolores Umbridge and the way in which her nastiness and her vitriol is shaped by having just these grudges. So I want to put that in the pen for later. But also we see Hermione explain what beau baton is and we hear, you know, some French spoken and whoever this person is and she says like, oh, Hogwarts. And then Hermione goes, oh, beau baton, which she says right after Harry loses his wand. And of course, baton in French means wand. And I want to pick up on that because we've just seen Hermione do something to advance the cause of house elf liberation after her own safety is put at risk. So I'm just, I'm highly attuned to sequencing in this chapter. And the fact that Harry's wand goes missing, it's used to to perform the dark mark, and then it's returned to him. Is there a metaphor there about Harry's consciousness that travels into the house where Frank gets killed, and then returns to him after a dream? Like, there's elements of his that go missing, new people interact with him, and it returns. I'm just 
wondering if there's anything that strikes you there or if I'm going off on a too far of an edge. I mean, I'm really struck by the idea that we send parts of ourselves out into the world and they come back to us in ways that are impacted, that we aren't in control of. I mean, even children, like that's what strikes me so much here, right? Arthur sees that Ron is among the three as they're casting spells and he says, stop, that's my son. And Barty Crouch realizes in this chapter that it's his son who's cast the dark mark and his world is unraveling. That's why he says to Diggory, let me handle Winky. Usually, you know, Amos's department would deal with it. So I just feel like there's something metaphorical about things that are ours in the world that are now beyond our control. Yeah, no, I think that that's... That's right. And the responsibility that we take for the things that we create. Right. And if you're creating a new technology and you right, you run or Twitter podcast. or a podcast and it's being used to weaponize and oppress people or it's giving fascists a platform from which they're casting dark marks, you have a responsibility to do something about that. Right. And where is the line on that? Like, is this Mr. Ollivander's fault? Hmm. Right. Like, I think we would all quite quickly say no and that wands are regulated. But... No, I think that that's right. I think that we do send things out into the world that we no longer have control of all the time. Even just words, right? You say something. Just the other day, I was on a walk with a friend, and she um, recently broke up with her partner, and she said, it's actually because of something you said, Vanessa. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) You know, like, what did I say? And it was just something I say in general that you want to be with somebody who doesn't have to make your life easier, but they shouldn't make your life harder. But there was this moment of panic of like, did I accidentally, when I wasn't thinking, send something out into the world that has had a negative impact on my friend in a way that I never could have imagined? And so we don't know. And there's like greater responsibility associated with all of our actions when we think about that. And how does that play out when you're 14, 15 years old? You know, I think about those two boys. Like, I'm sure they didn't really mean to cause me harm, but they did. I hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Vanessa, where else in the chapter did you see the theme of grudges show up? So I was reminded in this chapter about what's called sort of the incel movement would be the word that they use. And this is a group of men who call themselves incels because they are involuntarily celibate. And the argument that they make is that women deny them a right that they have, which is the right to have sex with women. And because of that, they have anger and sort of hold these grudges against women. And, you know, there are obviously different degrees of this. There have been shootings in the name of this. And certainly there's like a lot of language around like, well, you're asking for it. You obviously want to have sex, but not sex with me based on the outfit that you're wearing. And I feel like we see that in this chapter, in the moment in which a group of men has surrounded the villas. We're watching the Roberts family get tortured, and then you're walking through the rest of the campgrounds, and it just, this, like, beautiful campground has turned seedy. People are counting their winnings of how much money they made in bets, and it's like sort of the Pinocchio fair after everybody has drank. And one of the things that we see is a patch of silvery light, and when they looked through the trees, they being the trio, they saw three tall and beautiful villa standing in a clearing surrounded by a gaggle of young wizards, all of whom were talking very loudly. I pull down about a hundred sacks of galleons a year, one of them shouted. I'm a dragon killer for the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures. 
No, you're not, yelled his friend. You're a dishwasher at the Leaky Cauldron. But I'm a vampire hunter. I've killed about 90 so far. A third young wizard whose pimples were visible even by the dim silvery light of the villa now cut in. I'm about to become the youngest ever minister of magic I am. Harry snorted with laughter. He recognized the pimply wizard. His name was Stanley Shunpike, who we know from last book. And so I just feel like I understand that the Vilas have some sort of like literal magic about them where they make men go crazy. But the way that we understand the creepiness that so many men have been outed as having exhibited over the last several weeks and months is as a compulsion, right? Is as something that they can't control, but that the power structures have allowed to let fly anyway. And so I feel like the Vilas are actually a more apt metaphor than ever and that the combination of that sense of compulsion with a feeling of grudge and anger and entitlement is where things get dangerous and scary. And I think the Vila are just a great metaphor. And I'm wondering what we can learn from this scene to teach us about grudges and how we can learn to interact with each other from this scene. I feel like to answer that question, I actually want to point elsewhere in the text. Perfect. I feel like the fact that there are former Death Eaters who are able to run around in their old costumes points to the fact that the Wizarding World has not had the conversation that you're pointing to that could happen right now, which is really about truth and reconciliation. When we look at countries who have been through a horrific, whether it's a genocide or apartheid or multiple generations of enslavement, there are ways of processing that as a country, which involves truth-telling, truth-hearing, reparations, like a whole host of public memorializing and remembering, storytelling. And when that's done, and I think actually talking of Germany, there's an example of a country that has done its very best to do that. Yeah. It doesn't solve everything, but it has tried. And when you look at countries like the US or Britain, there's so much history that has not been contended with. And there's so much truth that has not been told. And I feel like that's what's failed to happen here in a post-Voldemort world. There are Death Eaters who somehow use the excuse of living under the imperious curse to explain their actions. I feel like what the Wizarding World didn't do after the end of Voldemort was give a platform and a process for the society to heal. And to heal, first we have to clean the wound, otherwise it festers. And in this chapter, that wound is festering. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are continuing with Chavruta. And the question I have for you is this. So often when Hermione references something that she knows that others don't, she tells us which book it's from. For example here, Why is it such a big deal, Ron asks. I told you, it's you-know-who's symbol, Ron, said Hermione, before anyone else could answer. I read about it in The Rise and Fall of the Dark Arts. And I want to ask you, why does she always reference where her point comes from? And I guess the answer I have to give is that she cares about integrity and she cares about intellectual rigor. And so she sees it as good practice, whether it's in an essay or whether you're informing your best friend and future husband, to tell them where it's from. But I feel like it's not the whole answer. 
What a great question. I love Hermione. I think that in a complicated world, telling someone that you know something is true and that you're not just guessing it and that it comes from a good source is a form of ministry. I think you're like, this is not an arguable thing that I'm about to tell you, Mm. right? Like, this is something that we can be present to, and here's how I know it. It's not fake news. It's not fake news. I'm just reminded of the, like, great minister and chaplain in our lives, Stephanie Paulsell. I have the honor of being a teaching assistant for her right now, and she is teaching a class on Virginia Woolf and religion. And when things get heated, I've noticed that she does what Hermione does. She starts saying true things and citing her sources. For example, you know, in the class, people are just getting heated the way that people often do with, like, meaning-making around Virginia Woolf's suicide and her mental health. And it's very personal for a lot of people, right? They're like, well, did she have bipolar disorder? Would her writing have been as good if she had been medicated? What meaning do we make of the suicide? And a lot of really good, productive class conversation was happening. And then the class conversation just – it got not as productive. People were misunderstanding each other. Feelings were being hurt. And Stephanie did not shut anybody down. She did not invalidate anybody's experience. She did not exert any authority from a personal place. She just started saying things that we know to be true. She was like, well, we know that Virginia Woolf had several suicide attempts. We know that people who are completely mentally healthy don't tend to try to commit suicide But we also know that when, you know, Virginia Woolf killed herself, it was the height of the Blitz and her house had been bombed and her husband and her were on Hitler's list. And it is entirely possible that she was a casualty of World War II. And just starting to list those facts was like a bomb on the classroom, right? Because the facts in and of themselves are complicated. And that whole list of facts about Virginia Woolf leads you to the conclusion that none of us know, mm. right? And it's something that Stephanie said in one of my very first you know, intro to ministry study classes with her was that it's your responsibility as a minister to not pretend to know something when you don't, but it's also your responsibility to say the things that you know are true. Which is literally what Hermione does up the page when one of the adults is saying that Winky picked up the wand and ran a mark and... The text tells us she didn't run amok, shouted Hermione. She just picked it up off the ground. She's not saying, and therefore Winky is innocent and you are being oppressive. She's just saying true Mm. things. Mm. And I just think that sometimes saying the simplest things that you are 100% sure are true can be like a bomb, right? If you're fighting with someone and you forget why, stop and be like, okay, The goal of this fight is to end with us loving each other. Which takes us back to truth and reconciliation, right? There's a reason why it's truth first and reconciliation second. Unless we know these truths and these facts, you can't reconcile. Yeah. I just think that Hermione is being a minister in the best sense. And she believes in knowledge, right? Like she is preaching the good news of like general knowledge. Of good factual evidence. Yeah. And she's like, let it heal you. I love that idea. And I love the way in which we're thinking about ministry in that expansive way that it is about bringing your gifts to the needs of the world. And for Hermione, it is about knowledge and it is about wisdom 
actually, because there's there's the knowledge she has, but it's the way in which she brings it into the world that makes her actually truly wise. And we've seen her mess up, and we're going to see her mess up. And if we're talking about truth and reconciliation, her our girl Hermione has a white lady savior problem, right? Also, she's 14. She's 14. But, like, if yes. we're going to praise her wisdom, we also have to hold her to account. Yes. But I do think when she's like the Bobaton school, I read about it in, right. right? She's like, I'm not, this isn't just guesswork about the different cultures that I happen to see. This is deductive reasoning based on research that I have done. She's not like, oh, that girl looks snooty. She right. must be French. <laughs> Bobaton. This voicemail is from Lana Hayes. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Lana, and I just finished listening to Chapter 6, The Port Key, read through the theme of acceptance. And I was thinking a lot about your conversation about Molly and her acceptance of Fred and George. And it really made me think about my wonderful son, who is an absolute firecracker and whose life ambition is to be a princess. And so he loves to wear dresses and he does most days. And that has been more difficult for me than I anticipated. And I really think, and what I see in Molly and what I see in myself is that parents have this fear of their children's lives being harder than they need to be. And so that leads us to want to protect them. And I really felt myself doing that. Um, And through this fear, I found myself not letting my son be himself, which that's what I should really be afraid of. And so I really had to start consciously checking myself. And is my reaction to him, is it being led by fear or love um, and acceptance? And, you know, am I policing his gender um, or am I setting healthy boundaries or you know, like having to wear weather appropriate clothing or even more nerve wracking. Am I trying to do both? And I don't know. I don't know every time what my motivations are, but what I do know is that I have to be consciously doing this emotional work because out there is going to be hard enough for him. So in here with me and with his family, he needs to get that ultimate form of love of acceptance of who he is as he is. And, you know, I really think Molly gets there over the course of the books. And honestly, with seven kids, that's a lot of work. So I'm going to give her some serious grace. Lana, thank you for that voicemail. I am so touched by your integrity and your effort and your vulnerability in sharing that this is really difficult sometimes and that the kind of binary lines of whether appropriate clothing and trying to protect him and set healthy boundaries or police's gender. Sometimes it feels like it's all mixed up together. And I think that's so real and so true to all of our experiences with people we love and and trying to protect and shape them in ways that we believe is right. I so appreciate you sending this in. I'm so glad that the podcast is part of your life and the wonderful parent that you are. Casper, it is now time for us to offer our blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? To be honest, I kind of just want to bless everyone in this chapter. It's it's just so difficult. But my blessing is for Barty Crouch Sr. This chapter is really the moment when everything unravels for him. And he seems to already be a little bit of a high-strung man, shall we say. We're going to learn so much about his backstory and the loss he has suffered and the pain that he lives with every day. And in this moment, we see the responsibility just 
full on him and his guilt and his shame and his just the weight of the world is on his shoulders and he can't see a way out. And I think I I want to bless anyone who feels like they are stuck and that they can't tell the truth in the way that we've talked about this episode. And I, I hope that Barty Crouch will find some peace as this story develops. And I, I hope everyone who feels stuck with a story that they can't escape can feel that too. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Winky. The moment where... Barty Crouch says to her, you know what this means, clothes. It's just one of the saddest moments that we've read so far in the books, and it it hasn't hurt me like this before. She's being told that she's been kicked out of her home and that her life's purpose is being taken away, and she knows that she didn't do anything wrong, and she just has to sit there and take it. Like, she has no power. And so I would like to offer a blessing to anyone who's like feeling a moment of desperation in which they feel as though they just have no control. I mean, it's terrifying. And I feel like in this chapter, it's embodied in this tiny, sweet creature. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr, and leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll read Mayhem at the Ministry of Magic through the theme of promises. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Kasper Terkail, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we would like to thank Lana Hayes for her beautiful voicemail, our social media manager, Harshi Hedegay, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, Stephanie Paulsell, and why not, Casper's mom. She's great. Yeah. Her name's Suzanne. Let's just thank her. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, Suzanne. Love you. I just find that my body is more responsive to gravity as I get older. Well, <laughs> what a beautiful way to illustrate that. And and particularly my tummy is, is always seeking for new areas of growth. Um, <laughs>